Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber and our guest today, Nicholas Hager, author of The Secret Founding of America. Say, Nicholas, where can people get your book? Uh, could you repeat that? Where can people get your book? Where Where can people... I'm sorry, the line's gone very faint. That's okay. Where can people get your book? Um, well, everywhere. In bookshops. Um, it's all over the place. Okay. The Secret Founding of America, Nicholas Hager, H-A-G-G-E-R. You were talking about the pyramid, I believe, on the dollar bill. Uh, could, could you repeat that? The you were talking bill? about the, the pyramid on the dollar bill? Indeed, yes, the, the pyramid. Uh, I was just saying that in 1776, uh, Adam Weishaupt um, created and designed this as the seal for his order of the Illuminati, which was a German group. Now, this was brought back to America in 1783 by Tom Paine for um, Benjamin Franklin, who mm-hmm. may have met Weishaupt, but was certainly in touch with him through others. And um, this uh, was incorporated into the American Great Seal. Yes. And then in uh, about 1933 or 1934, Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace showed this to uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was so impressed that he said, put it on the currency. And so now this Freemasonic symbol is, is on the dollar bill and is, um, is, is very prominently there. And this is just another example of how these Freemasonic symbols have crept into the American culture over a period of time and coexist with, with the Christian. Yes. Um, we're going to talk about a few of these um President's beliefs. Uh, once you start, Charmaine. Page one fifteen. Yeah, this, this is this is Franklin's belief. He wasn't a uh, Christian, or he wasn't a president, but he was uh, really strong in helping the United States start. So this is Franklin. Here is my creed: I believe in one God, Creator of the universe, that He governs it by His providence, that He ought to be worshipped. That the most acceptable service we we render him is doing good uh, to his other children. That the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental pr- principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as do you in whatever sect I meet with them. So that's uh, Franklin's... Uh, belief, and I believe a lot like that. You know, he says he believes that we're going to be uh, compensated next lifetime by what we do this lifetime. I, I really think that's real accurate. To Jefferson, good behavior was more important than right belief. He urged Peter Carr, his nephew, to judge every fact or opinion with reason and not to depend on the Bible or the church or ministries. Okay, let's go to 182. This is Lincoln's um, religion. This is what he says is his religion. When One moment. When any church will inscribe over its altar as its sole qualification for membership, the Savior's condensed statement of the substance of both law and gospel, Thou shalt love thy Lord... Thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and will, all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. That church I will join with my heart, all my heart and all my soul. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do too. 
Are you there, Nicholas? Yes, I am. Oh, um, the, the, this this um, is all to do with deism. Now, um, the Freemasonic uh, idea and the deistic idea are, are very close together. Deism really began in the 16, around 1620 or just after, mm-hmm. through Lord Herbert of Charbury. And um, it, it was a rational approach to religion which believed in God but not Christ and um, Freemasonry was linked through this um, via Bacon. Francis Bacon was the Elizabethan courtier and later Jacobean uh, courtier as well and he knew both Lord Herbert and in fact some said that deism was his idea and not Lord Herbert's and also uh, injected um, the, the initial belief into Freemasonry. So uh, Bacon is a pivotal figure here. And yes. Certainly by the time of Jefferson um, and Washington, they were all deists. Um, in other words, in God we trust was um, both a Christian and a Freemasonic statement. Right. And many of the statements you've just read out work both ways. Um, they can be heard by Christians as Christian statements, and they can be heard by um, the non-Christians, um, but, but the Freemasons, as um, Freemasonic or um, many nationalities. And it was I- ideal for the up-and-coming America that was letting in so many immigrants with people from uh, from, from from different faiths. Different religions, yeah. That's it, very... it was a kind of catch-all. Yes. So these people... It's not that they didn't believe in God, but they believed in a God, but it wasn't necessarily Jesus was their savior or some other religious structure. It was like, I believe in God, and I believe in pursuing a rational pursuit of God or what's right to do, something like that? That that was the deism of the rational enlightenment, yes. And the enlightenment lasted throughout the 18th century and came to an end, really, with the French Revolution, because... All of a sudden, the guillotine was set up, and a whole class, the bourgeois class, were executed. And people, and, and the goddess reason was set up in churches on the altar, mm-hmm. figures of the goddess reason. And people said, if this is rationalism and rational enlightenment, then right. something's gone wrong. Yes. And the, the original enlightenment wasn't about killing in, in a mass way. Um, and, of course, the Russian Revolution and other revolutions have gone on to replicate what happened in France, um, justifying um, mass killings. Um, so I, I think the true Enlightenment, um, uh, the deist Enlightenment, really ended about 1790. We're speaking today with Nicholas Hager, looking at, uh, going through his book, The Secret Founding of America, and looking at what the underpinnings are to the beginning of the United States. Um, let's see, Nicholas, um, I guess it was Jefferson that had three favorites, and one was Bacon, you just talked about, and then there was John Locke and Newton. What did they have to say? Um that's right, and you can see, if, if you go to Jefferson's um, house in Monticello, you, you can see um, statue, bust, busts of these three in his, in his room. Um, now, um, 
Newton and, and Locke were not as fundamental to Freemasonry as, as Bacon, but um, they also contributed to the rational enlightenment. Newton, by saying that um, the laws of the universe could be understood rationally um, in his own physics, he, he demonstrated this in the 1660s, and Locke, by um, applying it more to politics and uh, uh, and saying that the social arrangements between the ruled and the rulers um, were could, could be understood in a rational way. Yes. It was a rational social compact between the two, whereby the rulers brought justice to the, the ruled. You know, in, in my belief, I believe that reason... Right action and inspiration all uh, contribute to enlightenment. You know, it's like you don't necessarily have to follow a religion, but you just keep doing the best you can. If a religion helps you, if a philosophy helps you, if a certain practice, a spiritual practice or whatever helps you find, right action is best you can figure out and inspiration. So I don't know if they were talking about inspiration. They were talking about rationality, but... I, I gotta believe these men, these first presidents and the founding fathers of the United States were rather inspired. Yes, they were, but, um, deism believed in reason rather than revelation. And they said that there was no inner revelation, that everything could be worked out by the reason. And, um, looking at it from today's perspective, many would say, well, we've had the romantic movement since then where the romantic poets, um, had had the one revealed to them as Wordsworth and Shelley did. And, yes. Uh, there have been many revelations um, which are not rational, but which have religious currency in, among the mystics um, of all the ages. And so I think today's view of the Enlightenment is that it was partially a partially right and a very interesting movement. Yes. But there is probably more than than purely um, working things out by the reason, which, as I said, went wrong during the French Revolution. Right. Where, where reason can be a very unreliable guide if it's applied to, to politics. And yeah. as we saw in the case of the Soviet Union, there were rational justifications of Stalin's great purge. It can, it, it can be an unreliable guide. Yes. If, not, it needn't be, but it can be. Can um, people of all... Um races uh, or religions join Freemason? Yes, um, but uh, it's not only Freemasonry that speaks for people of all religions and all races. Um, in our time, we're seeing a world government gathering, and there are two new world orders or, or world governments. Um, there's a world government could be a very, very good thing because it could abolish all wars, diseases, famines, and combine all the Earth's resources yes. and make for a just um, Earth in which all nations and races um, have uh, a fair share of the cake. Right. But on the other hand, um, it, it could be um, a very bad thing because if you put Hitler or Stalin in charge of the New World Order or the world government right. uh, and in charge of the world, Stalin in Russia um, purged an enormous number of his people and Russians were able to flee 
um, outside Russia. But if this were happening at the world government level, level, there would be nowhere to flee. No place to go. No place to go. Yeah. And so it could be, I mean, with the right people in charge, um, a world government could be a brilliant thing for the world. Yeah. But with the wrong people in charge who um, are self-interested and uh, motivated by cornering all the billions and resources yeah. in the earth, for themselves. In other words, a self-interested ruling of the New World Order could be a disaster. Yes. You know, I I believe there's um, quite a bit of more billionaires, which can swing a lot. And um, is China moving along with this? Uh, Yes. Um, At at one level, um, to, to get a world government... A very good way is to split the world into two camps, which is what happened during the Cold War. Yes. Because at the end of, uh, of, of that time, you can unify it. You can, ha- you can have two camps with um, one side getting lots of colonies or colonial followers right. and the other side doing the same, just as the Soviet Union did in Africa right. and elsewhere in, in Asia. But um, when the putting together happens, then with the two rival powers come all the hangers-on, all the um, affiliates, which is a very good way of reorganizing the world. Yes. And it could be we're into now another round where the confrontation is not between uh, the West and the Soviet Union, but between the West, and including the Soviet Union, and China. And uh, it could be that that will happen in the next 20 years because um, China is targeting the West. I think there are 200 missiles pointing at America in uh, just in in, in places um, immediately around America. I, I can feel that happening. I believe you're accurate there. Sorry, could you repeat that last word? I said I can feel that happening. I believe you're accurate there. China is targeting the United States. Yes, um, I think so. But eventually, just as the Cold War ended with the um, coming down of the Berlin Wall, so um, any confrontation or, or standoff between the West and China will eventually end, and that could be the final world government in place. We're talking today with Nicholas Hager, who's the author of The Secret Founding of America. Uh, Say, Nicholas, what do you think Rockefeller, this is in your book, the Rockefeller family paying uh, $8.5 million for 18 acres for the U.N. building to be built way back in the middle of last um, century kind of thing. What's their motive? Well, the Rockefellers were the protégés of the Rothschilds. So in the 1880s, 1890s, the Rothschilds had had the fortune and were the richest family in the world by um, a long way. And the Rockefellers um, borrowed money from them to get the railroad going in America. Yes. And um, came up very, very rapidly. And... Uh, so rapidly that um, now the boots on the other foot, the Rockefellers are, are more dominant than the, than the Rothschilds. Yes. And that crossover happened at some point during the 20th century. Um, by the Second World War, um, all Roosevelt's cabinet um, 
were, were dominated by Rockefellerites. The, the majority of the cabinet um, had links with Rockefellers. And so it was only natural in 1945 when the UN came to be created that um, the Rockefellers should buy the land and uh, donate it and uh, set, uh, set the world up. The Rockefellers, like the Rothschilds, want a world government. Now, whether it's an altruistic, um, selfless world government of the first kind that I was describing, which will end wars, diseases and famines, or whether it's more self-interested, making more billions for them, um, the jury is out on. Yeah. But the, the, um, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds are in partnership to try and achieve that world government. There are, of course, shifts in emphasis, for example, uh, the Rothschilds are more tied to Israel and the Rockefellers perhaps um, more on the side of Palestine. Okay, so more on this when we come back from break. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Hold on. <laughs> 